Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with the National Rural Network, Food Drink Ireland Skillnet, and Dairy Sustainability Ireland. My name is Mark Gibson, and I'm manager of the Chagas Connected program. I'm also joined this morning by Pat Murphy, who is head of the Chagas Environment Knowledge Transfer Programme, and Pat will be helping us with questions later. Decarbonising of our environment is top of the European agenda, and Renewable Energy Directive has set out a target for all member states to have a minimum of 3.5% renewable gas use of heat by 2030. Today, we'll be discussing uh, the renewable gas and taking a look at the Mitchellstown Central Grid Injection Facility. And I'm delighted to be joined by Neve Gillen, who is an innovation engineer, and Ian Kilgallen, who is a business development officer, both with Gas Networks Ireland. Good morning, Neve and Ian. You're welcome to the Signpost series. And Neve, if I could start with you, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing in Gas Networks Ireland, and maybe what's the connection to agriculture? Yeah, so the work we are doing at the moment is, and um, I'll get into it in a bit more detail, but as, as a gas network, we're looking to decarbonise the gases which flow through our pipelines. And the area that myself and Ian are looking at is renewable gas in the form of biomethane. And the connection with agriculture is that the model that we are kind of most focused on the minute is biomethane derived from agricultural resources such as slurry and grass silage. So that's where the link is. Brilliant. And Ian, you're welcome. Indeed. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, indeed. We're, we're both obviously working in the same area. So, yeah, agriculture, we, you know, it's unusual. We don't have any farmers that are actually on the gas pipeline, so to speak, that are consuming gas. But actually in the food processing sector, uh, gas would be pretty dominant, for instance. So uh, our largest customer base would be agri, food processing, dairy, beef processing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we obviously we're here to support agriculture in other ways. Uh, in my introduction, I said that there's a 3.5% uh, target there for uh, renewable gas coming from uh, uh, non-fossil fuel sources, we'll say. What's, um, you know, that, that it, it seems to be quite an unambitious target, if I might say that. Uh, I know other countries do have higher targets. Where are we on that journey in Ireland? Without eating too much into your presentation. Yeah, so under the Renewable Energy Directive, so the European Directive, Red 2, there's, um, a, I suppose, a minimum target for all member states for the heat sector to be at, at a minimum, 3.5% by 2030. So our goal, the national target of 3.5%, is the minimum that's obliged in any event, if you know what I mean. But if you compare with our colleagues in France, so we do a lot of uh, work with our, our French colleagues, God loves, uh, they have a, a mandatory target of 10% by 2030. And indeed, they're actually going beyond that target they have an unofficial target now of potentially 30 percent by 2030 and in their case they're looking to be in an export position so that they would be looking to export their renewable gas to other markets and other other countries that would be further behind oh, okay. i suppose just to add there as well from being that little bit behind means that we do have the opportunity as ian said to learn off the best practices where things were went wrong where things are going really really well from our colleagues across Europe so a little bit behind but a lot of opportunity to grow is what we see. So Neil, we'll hand over to you and uh, looking forward to your presentation. Yeah, thank you very much Mark um, and firstly just on behalf of myself Ian and Gas Networks thank you to Chagas for the opportunity to talk today at the Signpost series and just to congratulate you on what has been a wonderful and insightful event so far. So today we're going to discuss renewable gas, why it's needed, how it's produced, and how a producer can inject into our gas network. Then Ian's going to give an overview of the Mitchelltown Central Grid Injection Facility and progress to date here in Ireland and throughout Europe. And then we'll just finish off with a piece on sustainability. So why does Gas Networks Ireland need to decarbonise its gas network? So climate change is the reason. Um, it's the most urgent global challenge facing us today and failure to address it is going to have repercussions for this generation and for generations to come. And one step that has been made in the climate change challenge is the move away from fossil fuels as energy sources. And fantastic efforts have been made here in Ireland, especially around renewable electricity, but gas is still playing a critical role in our energy system. 
So the gas network here in Ireland is a state-owned modern asset that's providing flexible energy to over 700,000 customers. And again, even though fossil fuel consumption has been reducing, the gas, gas in Ireland is still accounting for roughly one third of Ireland's primary energy mix and over half of Ireland's electricity generation, accounting for 53% in April. So when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, gas is a natural backup. So also, as, as I suppose, we're finding more of these frequent disruptive weather events as well, um, and they're becoming a lot more common. So it's important that we have a utility that's buried beneath our feet and that is rarely impacted by extreme weather conditions. That means we're ensuring security supply as well when it's needed the most. So how do we retain such a vital energy asset um, for our country? So as the gas network, we are looking to decarbonize, as I said, the gases which flow throughout our pipelines. And we're looking at various technology solutions, but the one we're going to talk today about today is renewable gas in the form of biomethane. And I, before we get into the process of producing biomethane, we're just going to take a look at the policy context which drives the need for such a solution. So if you've been to some of the other webinars in this series, you'll have noticed already that the European Green Deal and the Farm to Fork strategy have been mentioned quite a lot as important policy drivers. And this is true as well for biomethane. And with the Farm to Fork strategy, it calls anaerobic digestion technology out as a key technology to meet the reduction targets that are set within that strategy. The European methane strategy also recognises the role of biomethane in reducing methane emissions. The Renewable Energy Directive too um, is important for the production of sustainable biomethane and they have sustainability criteria which producers have to follow. And finally, the systems integration strategy recognises the role of renewable gases as being complementary within the entire energy system. So a European study has recognised Ireland as having the highest potential for biogas production per capita in the EU by 2030. So as a country, we're uniquely positioned to develop an indigenous industry. Now, I know some of you here today might be familiar with the process, but for the benefit of those who don't, we might just walk through it. So organic material is fed into an anaerobic digester in the form of feedstock. This material is then broken down in an oxygen-free environment, otherwise known as anaerobic. That whenever the material decomposes, um, which is a natural process, it creates biogas. And as this decomposition occurs within the facility, the biogas is captured. But at this point, it's important to make a distinguish between biogas and biomethane. So biogas, once created, its constituents is roughly 60% methane and 40% carbon dioxide, um, and also kind of trace other impurities. So in order to transform that into biomethane, we need to upgrade and clean it. So what that means is we take away the methane from the carbon dioxide. So once that has happened, we have biomethane. And this biomethane is a or it's a compatible substitute for natural gas, and therefore it can be injected into our gas network. So we have a carbon neutral renewable gas. And what that means is that the emissions that will be created once the fuel is burnt have already been offset by the emissions avoided throughout the process. So if you think of it kind of as like balancing scales, so the emissions burnt have been offset, making it neutral um, throughout in the process. So the gas can be injected either through direct injection or a central grid injection facility. And ultimately, the end product um, is a renewable energy source directly to the customer that requires no change in infrastructure and no change to their operations. And the optimum use of biomethane is for the hard to decarbonize sectors, such as heat processing and transport. Now, aside from the energy benefit of biomethane, there's, other, there's also wider benefits that have been documented with the anaerobic digestion process, and they're mainly attributable to the agricultural sector. So one benefit is, um, I suppose, the digestate, which is a substrate, um, the remaining substrate of the AD process. And with its high nutrient value and its decreased methane emissions, it can act as a biofertilizer. And there's a multitude of benefits that have been documented with digestate um, research here in Ireland and throughout Europe. 
and it will be a key enabler for those EU reduction targets, such as the 20% reduction in chemical fertilizer. And also it may contribute to restoring soil health and the increasing of soil organic content. And as the benefits, um, these wider benefits exist within the agricultural sector, there's a unique opportunity for our food production companies here in Ireland, which is a vital source of revenue and employment um, for the country. So the, the majority of these food production companies need biomethane um, to decarbonize their thermal processes. But given that their supply chain is agri-based, there also is the potential for them to potentially harness some of these wider benefits as well. So in order for a biomethane industry to be realized here in Ireland, Gas Networks Ireland has a supporting role in where a producer is producing gas. Our role is to try and get every unit of gas onto our grid. So in some instances, this may be done through direct injection. And that is where an AD facility is close enough to the existing gas network. And it may be possible to construct a pipeline extension between the AD site and the network. Where that isn't viable, there is the potential to inject in a central grid injection facility. And what that means is that the biomethane produced on site is collected and transported via road to the central grid injection facility. So both options are viable, but they, I suppose, give different conditions for the producer to think about. So for example, with the direct injection, as you're directly connected, there is less moving parts. Um, maybe a little bit more direct control, whereas with the central grid injection facility, you have to consider logistics coming to your site. And that's just an example of the differences between the two models. But in any case, both options are extremely viable. And the option that is suitable for a producer comes down to their distance to the gas network. So I'm just going to pass you over now to Ian. And Ian will bring you through the Mitchellstown central grid injection facility. Thank you, Neil. So just to give you a bit of background, obviously, um, there are two primary ways upon which you can inject biomethane into the gas grid. Uh, we have direct injection projects, which uh, at the moment we have about 60 inquiries we've, we've pre-approved. Um, but today I'm just talking about central grid injection. And central grid injection is to facilitate a remote AD facilities um, on the basis that we can collect gas and bring it to a point for grid injection. Uh, so the, the processes are identical. The AD facilities in all cases are producing biomethane on site. Uh, but in this case, the gas is injected into tube trailers and the tube trailers bring the gas to the, the, the network. We refer to it in the industry as virtual pipeline. Uh, now, currently, um, uh, the, the, the project here in Mitchellstown, it's just a short distance outside of Mitchellstown. Uh, we have actually secured full planning permission. Uh, the site, as you can see in the picture there, is adjacent to uh, one of our existing infrastructure points and above ground installations. So the, the grey box to the right is the existing facility and the, the, the site to the left, which is about 1.8 hectares, is the, the new facility. So we've, as I say, secured full planning permission. We're now in the detailed design phase. So over the coming months, we'll be concluding that. Uh, we'll be running our first workshop in mid-June, uh, so whereby we'll be engaging with potential developers within the catchment area. So uh, any interested parties, uh, this is aimed at agri-sectors, so agri-AD developers or potential agri-AD developers. This could be groups of farmers, it could be individual farmers, or it could be uh, commercial developers as well. Uh, we're, as I say, we're open for business. So we'll, you'll see at the end of our slide pack, we have a, a generic email address. So anyone inquiring um, for both direct injection or for the Mitchellstown project can use that uh, email address. Uh, anyone specifically interested in this particular project in the Mitchellstown catchment, we'd ask that you include the word Mitchellstown in, your, in the header of the email. Um, and as I say, we'll, we'll, we'll be looking to engage the first workshop in mid-June. Uh, the facility, it's, it's, it's a large industrial scale facility. It will at full capacity be able to support 20 plus, maybe 28 uh, AD, agri AD facilities. The average size would be 20 to 40 gigawatt hours per annum. So in, in terms of feedstock, you're looking at um, 
AD facilities that will be taking in a minimum of 35,000 tonnes of gross feedstock per annum. Uh, and roughly speaking, about 50% of that needs to be animal slurry or other equivalent wastes. Um, the 40 gigawatt hours obviously is about twice that, but that's kind of the upper limit as well for, for road collection uh, of, of, of gas for central grid injection like this. You really wouldn't be building facilities greater in size than that. For direct injection, you can consider bigger. You can go double, three times or four times that size indeed. And some of the inquiries we're dealing with for direct injection are of much more substantial size, but it's, it's a road movement thing. If you appreciate, we, we simply couldn't collect gas from a facility uh, that big, you're better to try and locate closer to the grid if you were looking at that. Uh, Size-wise, uh, as I say, at full capacity, uh, this will be able to accommodate 700 gigawatt hours of gas. What, what that equates to is about uh, enough gas to, to heat 64,000 homes. Uh, or to put it more specifically, the agri sector, that's enough gas to power, you know, four large um, industrial uh, dairy processing facilities, for instance. So um, the intention here is that we will we will roll this facility out in phases over three phases. Initially, it will be for a 25 percent rollout. So in essence, we'll be looking for six to eight developers to develop in parallel with ourselves such that we're commissioning everything at the same time. And as I say, that process is starting now this year. Um, obviously, we will continue rolling out the subsequent phases based on the local demand within the catchment area. Um, and as I say, it's hard to say exactly at what point in time we will be at 100%, but our target to be at 25% is roughly late 2023, maybe early 2024. So in timing, uh, this means that this infrastructure and this project will be coming to market, I suppose, at a time that will be slightly later than the incentivization schemes that will be coming to the market. So I suppose those early adapters under the new incentive schemes will be mostly direct injection projects, but this project will be probably in scale actually very substantial and will probably make up maybe close to half of the total market under this initial target. So the, it's important to be slightly later than direct injection uh, and any developers that, as I say, that are interested in making an early movement on, uh, to get access to this early market, I suppose, direct injection is your, is your primary port to call. Um, I might just switch to the next slide there, Neil, sorry. So that's, this just gives you an outline of the project. As I say, the, the, main, the main elements here is that it's obviously, it's a piece of infrastructure, a central grid injection infrastructure. You're looking at about a 20 million euro investment in total from ourselves. Uh, we have been shortlisted for co-funding from the uh, Climate Action Fund. And if that proceeds through, then indeed we'll also be um, supporting two um, CNG stations. This would be uh, commercial CNG stations for heavy goods vehicles. Uh, and that's a particularly uh, focused market, so to speak. But obviously, you know, the same facility could actually, for instance, be used to, to fuel biomethane tractors, for instance, as well. Uh, we, again, subject to the co-funding, we will also be offering a grant scheme to support um, vehicle conversion or new vehicle purchase for, for commercial fleet operators. Uh, if you want to switch on to the next slide there, Dave. So, uh, you know, here in Ireland, um, as people can appreciate, we're well behind our European colleagues in, in many respects. There are advantages to that, as Neil was describing there, uh, but we're not totally behind. At the same time, we, we do have, we don't currently have any direct injection projects, funnily enough. Our only injection is an example of a CGI, a, a central grid injection facility here in, in uh, Cush, County Kildare. I'll go, I'll go into it in more detail later on. Uh, but the... The interesting nature of this particular facility, given that it was constructed and commissioned back in May 2020 ahead of any national incentive scheme. So the, the biggest difficulties we had working with Green Generation in early was to try and find ways by which they could commercially and viably uh, inject biomethane absent a feed-in tariff, so to speak, or other incentive. And I suppose it led to interesting circular economy developments and the, the best example I think the Green Gen have been able to demonstrate there is their, their contract with Tesco. So Green Generation have a contract with Tesco whereby they take in their um, shelf life expired food waste and things like that, but they also take in uh, plastics, you know, single use plastic waste with fairly significant volume as well. The circular economy story there is that obviously the proportion of, of food wastes that is supplied into um, the facility is converted 
oxygen to biomethane, which is injected back into the grid at Cush. And essentially, Tesco are buying that then to run some of their vehicles on their commercial fleet. Uh, and interestingly, then on the, the plastic waste that Green Generation is taking in, they're using that waste to produce products like uh, motorway barriers and, and plastic bins, for instance, and things like that. So an interesting story, but obviously hard to replicate. You know? So that's kind of a standalone story that and you will see other examples like that. But for mass rollout, it's not, I suppose, the, it's not the, the ideal model to begin with, but it is an interesting uh, topic and, and as I say, fascinating as to how ingenuity can be brought to the brought to bear where where uh, incentives have lacking have lacked you might skip on there Niamh. Uh, now i won't go into this in too much detail so we in gas networks ireland are supporting a uh, rollout of cng infrastructure this is compressed natural gas filling stations specifically for heavy goods vehicles in the commercial market um, it, it makes obviously environmental sense for HGVs to come off diesel and even just going to natural gas represents a significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. You're looking at you know, 30, 35% reduction straight off. And obviously with biomethane, that brings it down to zero again. So that's that's obviously a distinct incentive, but commercially it's very viable for heavy goods vehicle operators to convert that it's 35% cheaper to, to run on natural gas than it is on diesel. Uh, the vehicle costs are more expensive. Uh, we have a series of grant schemes that we ourselves initially set up to support uh, some of those fleet operators to convert. There are also now new schemes that have been introduced by the Department of Transport. And indeed, if Project Grace goes ahead with the co-funding, then indeed we'll have a third um, support scheme there for vehicle conversions, which you might skip on to the next slide, Niamh. Uh, so just to, to kind of uh, outline, you know, we, Gas Networks Ireland, you know, as I say, we're in the business and everybody always assumes that we've been in the business of transporting methane, natural gas. But in reality, no, we've been transitioning through gas and through the ages, so to speak. Um, so gas networks in Ireland were established back in the 1890s and originally um, running on what was referred to as town gas, which was a pyrolysis produced gas. Uh, which was mostly hydrogen, actually, funnily enough, so um, hydrogen and, and carbon monoxide. And uh, we transitioned to natural gas when the uh, seven, uh, sorry, when the Kinsale gas field was introduced. And indeed, when we built the interconnectors, we, we brought all of the remaining towns over to full natural gas. And that's back in the, the 70s, 80s and 90s even. Uh, now, natural gas is mostly methane. So the transition from natural gas over to biomethane is, a, is an easy transition for us as a gas network operator. Uh, we don't have any infrastructure changes. Obviously, the new infrastructure required is injection plants and injection facilities, uh, both direct and, and CGI. Uh, but chemically system-wise and all that, it's actually quite an easy transition. So we could, technically speaking, go to 100% biomethane tomorrow if it was available, so to speak. Uh, now, as we continue towards full decarbonisation out to 2050, there isn't enough biomethane that could be produced to get us to 100%. Um, so hydrogen will play an important role going forward as well. It'll come in probably more closer to the, the next decade, really, just commercially, but you will see projects being progressed in this early phase. Um, and indeed, you know, blending, continuing to blend biomethane and also introducing a hydrogen blend, you will see more of that coming place or taking place into the next decade. And as we get out towards 2050, then you're looking at a, a gas network that will be running on both hydrogen and biomethane. And that can be done in several different ways, but it's a topic all in itself. So maybe I'll just hand it back to you there, Niamh. Oh, sorry, yeah, one more slide. Yeah, just to give a bit of background, as we mentioned earlier, yeah, because you can see Ireland right there at the very end, we have one biomethane facility here in Ireland, which is the one in, in Cush, um, and obviously well behind everybody else. To, um, uh, I suppose, to our advantage, yes, we're learning from the best. So we ourselves are partnered with our French colleagues. Um, our colleagues in France are rolling out three biomethane facilities per week at this stage and even throughout this whole COVID crisis they never stopped to eat there back in March of last year they were at two facilities per week um, 
the French government actually continued to give priority to renewable energy projects throughout the whole COVID crisis. So they really didn't lose anything on that and they've now increased it to three facilities a week. Uh, France are, I believe, four years ahead of their target for uh, 10% by methane by 2030. They have well over a thousand by methane projects. And as I say, by the end of 2019, they'd commissioned 131 of them. Uh, so they're, they're very much uh, ambitious to, to continue this development. By the vast majority would be agri-based as well. Um, and as I say, we have the advantage of working with our colleagues, learning from uh, their design uh, learnings and lessons. And indeed, a lot of what we're adapting is based on, on most of those French uh, French lessons. Uh, the only facilities that we've been able to support commissioning as well have been in France. So we have engaged in, in uh, some transfers and, and uh, secondments and things like that uh, over, again, pre-COVID. So it, it, we have, I suppose, the learnings built up and we'd like to proceed at a, at a higher pace. And obviously, we hope to, that the, this industry will take off in the coming years. Uh, and we're quite comfortable with this initial target. We feel, that, in fact, that it's probably something we can far overachieve on, if anything. Uh, so I'll pass it back to Neil there. Thank you very much. Excellent. So in order, again, for our renewable industry to be developed here in Ireland, a key function is the certification of renewable gas. And a question we get asked is, why do we need certificates? So there are many businesses throughout Ireland who are looking for sustainable and indigenous fuel alternatives to natural gas, including our food processing companies. And this is because they need to decarbonize their carbon or decrease their carbon footprint and be more sustainable out into the future. So this demand has created a European wide market of certificates and they're already being administrated in several European countries. And this will allow the tracking of biomethane throughout our gas network. So by providing an objective means of tracking of commercial transactions of biomethane, this will, I suppose, create trust and confidence within the Irish market. So Gas Networks Ireland registers and certifies and issues certificates to Irish producers who inject into our gas network. And the issues, the certificates are issued either as a guarantee of origin or a proof of origin. And what this does is it provides the end customer with a demonstrable use of a renewable fuel. So this leads us on to sustainability. And we might just use the Mitchellstown CGI facility as I suppose a context setter for what feedstock would be required at maximum capacity at Mitchellstown. So at maximum capacity, we would need 3% of current grass silage volumes and 5% of stored slurry within the catchment area. Now there's been fantastic research done by Chagisk and other uh, bodies within Ireland on underutilized land and underproductive land. So research is demonstrating that the grass silage required can be met by implementing better land management practices and without the requirement for additional land use. And in turn, the digestate, which is the byproduct of the process, can be returned to the farms and lands that were utilized with, within the process, and allowing some displacement of chemical fertilizers and reduction in spreading of slurry. And again, fantastic research done here in Ireland and across Europe, um, demonstrating that digestate application is given higher yields in comparison to slurry and to chemical fertilizer. Now, as we continue to support an indigenous biomethane industry here in Ireland, sustainability is, uh, I suppose, a concern that comes up quite a lot, and it's a concern that needs addressed. And the concern is mainly around, would the introduction of the biomethane industry here in Ireland upset, I suppose, the wider agricultural system? Would it upset the balance? So with this in mind, we commissioned a report with the expertise of KPMG Sustainable Futures, Devonish Nutrition and their research farm in Dice, and also this report was supported by Chagisk as well. And what this report is doing is looking at Irish data on sustainable farming practices. Now, I'm not sure if any of you managed to attend the fantastic presentations that were given by John Finn of Chagisk, John Gilliland of Devonish, and also Helen Sheridan and Tommy Boland of UCD, where they discussed multi-species swords. And as our report is coming to conclusion, multi-species spores is also something that is was becoming a bit, uh, I suppose, an important topic um, in addressing a concern of 
feedstock versus fodder. And that concern of feedstock versus fodder has been heightened, I suppose, in the last few years, especially given the challenging weather circumstances such as drought. So the initial results from the research at DICE and the research across Ireland um, is demonstrating that multi-species are more climate resilient. They're demonstrating increased yields with decreased nitrogen input. And also when used as a feedstock in the AD process, there is the potential for increased biogas yields. And this is aside from the other research on animal growth. So we're hopeful that this report and all of the fantastic research that has been displayed throughout the signpost series will alleviate concerns of agricultural AD and also the agricultural system as a whole. And just before we conclude, we just want to touch on the farmer opportunity. And I suppose the opportunity and benefit from being involved in Agri-AD is mainly through diversification of income and income certainty into the future. And the means through which this can be achieved is feedstock income, lease income for the AD site, operator salary, digestate management, and also reduce costs of chemical fertilizer by, by utilizing digestate. Um, by implementing better land management practices to ensure that sustainability, there's potential for increased carbon sequestration and the potential to further reap any benefits that that will bring. Economic ownership and dividends. Now to conclude, um, I hope that you all got something from this presentation today. And just to touch on the key points is that Biomethane is an essential renewable energy to displace natural gas and ensure security supply for our country into the future. It supports EU policy and also as a country, we have a unique opportunity to produce an indigenous biomethane industry. Biomethane can help support the hard de to decarbonize sectors and also agriculture. The process can and must be done sustainably. And in doing so, it would provide a rural, rural jobs and stimulate the rural economy and have a diversified income for the farming sector. So thank you very much. And as Ian said earlier, this is our email address, renewablegas at gasnetworks.ie. So if anybody has any questions or queries, feel free to note this down and we'll get back to you in the coming days. Thank you very much. Thank you, Niamh, and thank you, Ian. Uh, and thank you for staying on time. I was really... Uh, excellent presentation. Uh, I learned a lot during that, I have to say. And uh, you've obviously uh, stimulated a lot of interest from our, our audience this morning because we have a lot of questions coming in around the, I suppose, the, the, um, the, the cycles that you proposed. Um, quite a few questions coming in around the whole food or fuel debate. And um, so one of our um, uh, a question coming in from a, a colleague from France who is saying there is a big debate over in France happening about this rollout of digesters across the country and how is this going to impact on our food security or you know is there going to is, is this going to create tension? Uh, what's been the experience, Niamh, on, on in that uh, around the, the the European Union or indeed uh, Ireland? Uh, I know there's been a lot of discussion around it. Uh, and particularly the north of Ireland as well, I know there, there's been a, uh, that has, has come up in many debates. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, it, it's a valid concern, um, especially as climate change is bringing more challenging circumstances, especially for farmers. Um, but I suppose we're, we're looking at it more from a, like a sustainability piece as a whole. And, you know, in order to to comply with the red two sustainability criteria like production of grass has to be done in a fashion that doesn't disrupt the natural balance of the system and we're very much encouraged by the research especially around multi-species spores and i mean i know there's other reports that chagas have done as well just generally on underutilized land and underproductive land and being able to incrementally increase and i suppose you we would have to find a point where there is enough incremental feedstock and there'd have to be a cutoff point as well. It would have to be done in such a fashion that you aren't diverting food away from, from the animal. But as I said, we do have a fantastic report coming out um, in collaboration with a lot of parties on this. And we're hoping that once, once published, we'll be able to alleviate a lot of the concerns around feedstock versus fodder. Yeah, 
in that respect. But the multi-species swords is definitely kind of the initial kind of not prize, but optimism whenever it comes to increasing the yields, having incremental feedstock and having, again, that climate resilience as well going forward. Yeah, the, the other thing to be aware of as well, obviously, it's an opportunity to address uh, slurry management, you know, nitrates issues and things like that as well. Uh, and the, you, you primarily have to focus initially on waste resources in a, for a catchment area for every AD development. It's animal slurry first, if you know what I mean. So the reason we picked the, the Mitchellstown location within that catchment area, there's quite a lot of farmers that are in derogation there, for instance. So uh, it's an opportunity to address uh, nitrates, derogation issues issues for one thing. Uh, also, the AD process obviously um, alleviates a lot of the risks associated with using raw slurry for land spreading. Digestate itself in a raw form, it's, it's at 60% more nutrient content, so it's, it's more uh, it, it's more manageable from um, a land spreading point of view. It's more effective. Uh, it can be absorbed much more uh, efficiently into soil as well. However, most of the developments that we've been engaged with, with our French and German colleagues uh, in recent times and going into the future is not really looking at digestate as a product in itself. It's really an ingredient for the production of more um, I suppose, more useful organic fertilizers. So in reality, processing digestate is probably going to be part of the design spec and also um, processing this, extracting the, the primary um, nutrients, your NPKs, and at least concentration, if you know what I mean. So you're, you're dealing with a, a product that can be certified as an organic fertilizer, can be in a form that's more easy to transport and also more easy to spread. And do we know what the actual nutrient content of these digestates is, or, or is there a standard? It all depends on the feedstock in, feedstock in, uh, digestate out, if you know what I mean. Uh, so a typical, very typical, if you're assuming roughly a 50-50 split of, say, slurry and um, and something like grass silage, you're looking at at least 60% 60, 60 higher NPK, anyway, just by that uh, mix. Uh, and then if you are applying, say, like there's a few very interesting technologies we've been engaged with uh, and several parties are looking to bring them into Ireland that can concentrate that into an NP and an NK, for instance. So you're looking at a concentrated form of NP and NK. And again, that can be further processed or further used as an ingredient for the production of more um, specific kind of bespoke organic fertilizers, for instance. So. Uh, but as it's case by case, and in reality, once you start processing it, it's, it becomes a product. And uh, I suppose where you have farmers then that are in, you know, have a, a need for more NK or more NP, then obviously you have a product that can be designed to meet those requirements. And just to touch there on the standards. Um, so we can develop our own standard here in Ireland for digestive. Um, there is no European wide standard at the moment, but there has been, I suppose, signals from Europe that that will be coming through the biofertilizer regulations. And um, it's, I suppose, not overly essential um, for European standard unless we wish to trade um, digestate throughout Europe um, to have a CE mark for that digestate. But the, the development of standards is coming and it has to come in order to meet those farm to fork um, reduction. I mean, the farm to fork strategy has reduction of 20% chemical fertilizer, 50% chemical pesticides, and I think 20% increase in organic farming overall. So that is definitely going to stimulate some guidelines around digestate into the future as well. well there's, there's no doubt there's a, a tidal wave of, of policy on its way in, in, in this whole area. Um, just, just finally, from my own perspective, just, just on the practice, uh, the practical aspects of this, uh, a farmer... Um, presumably sells his or her slurry to a an AD plant and uh, has the, do they have the option then of buying back or how does that actually work in practice because I'm just keeping an eye here on the nutrient cycling side of things because I know that over the next number of years there's going to be a lot of as you say pressure in terms of uh, reducing our chemical uh, nitrogen inputs um, so what, how, how does that process work in practice? Because I know that, look, the whole economics of this area has been, you know, maybe slow to catch up with, with uh, the, the, uh, the appetite to, to, to actually implement it. 
Yeah, and the, the economics will vary by by cluster, if you know what I mean. So if you take an example um, of a cluster of dairy farmers supplying slurry, uh, there's really very few dairy farmers that are big enough to have uh, their own facility and with just their own slurry. So you really are looking at a, a let's call it a, a slurry cooperative almost for, for the dairy sector. You could be talking about maybe eight or, or maybe eight or less dairy farmers coming together having the facility at one of their farms so you know direct supply into that and then you've either a collection and distribution service then in the other direction uh, it's, it's down to ownership as well if the if this is run as a cooperative then those farmers are also the owners of it so you're buying and selling to yourself if you know what i mean but at the end of the day commercially there's a value a relatively small nutrient value to raw slurry in itself but the there will be a more significant value to the digestate out business models we've developed have assumed a zero value or sort of a, a, a net zero uh, value at the moment but in reality we believe especially with the european uh, farm to fork strategy we believe there will be a commercial value developing on the uh, returning nutrients so to speak uh, if you take that and say a dairy farmer that might be in derogation so if they're supplying 5,000 tons into a facility um, they're not going to be getting 5,000 tons of digestive back they wouldn't want to anyway because it's 60% higher nutrient content so in reality no they're taking back what they need for their own land area uh, digestive in, especially in concentrated form will be more valued for the tillage sector for instance as well so you will be in reality supplying organic fertilizer out to a variety of farming sectors not necessarily uh, just the farmers that are in the supply chain of the of the feedstock if you know what i mean uh, but at the very least those that are supplying in slurry should at least get a nutrient equivalent back it may not be the same tonnage but a nutrient equivalent back and the commercial arrangements is, is down to the individual sure. farmers of the group if you know what i mean <laughs> that makes sense pass yeah i think Neve has, has broken the record for the quickest bulk of questions and the most questions on a single topic. What happens to this 40% CO2? Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah, so believe it or not, there is a very high market for green CO2. Um, I mean, there's quite a few industries in Ireland, like for example, the beverage industry and the horticulture industry that would utilize CO2. So where they can get green CO2, there's also value for that as well. If there can't be, a, a, I suppose, a, a source or a, a, a customer for that green CO2, again, whenever we talked about that life cycle analysis, if that CO2 is vented into the air, if there is not a customer, which, as I said, demand is very high for green CO2 for beverages, packaging, horticulture, where, where it is vented, it's already been accounted for again within that life cycle analysis. So it doesn't impact that end result of the carbon neutral renewable gas because the emissions overall have accounted for that CO2 being released into the atmosphere. So you are still balancing out over the, the entire process, ensuring you have that carbon neutrality. And that carbon neutrality is a reduction based on the fossil fuel comparator. So for example, where a company or an industry would have used natural gas for their heating processes, the fossil fuel comparator is natural gas. So where you use biomethane, there has to be a 70% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions in comparison to that natural gas. So that's all accounted for within the life cycle analysis under the Renewable Energy Directive 2. But we are finding that the market for green CO2 is, there, there is quite a volume there for that as well. Okay, two, two related questions then. Are there any concerns about leakage of, of uh, methane out of the system? And are there any plans to uh, capture more of the methane from landfill that's, that's currently there? Yeah, so methane slightly off, off topic. Yeah, oh, both related. Yeah, so methane slippage is, is what we would refer to there for both, actually. Yeah. And um, so certainly the standard for biomethane facilities would be quite high. So the tolerance for methane slippage is very low. If you appreciate it commercially as well, it's not a good thing to, to lose that valuable gas because that's what you earn your revenue on, if you know what I mean. Um, certainly the methane slippage standards that we would be advocating would be a minimum, or sorry, maximum half a percent uh, methane slippage. In reality, you can monitor these things and it, a properly designed facility should not have any methane slippage. 
if you look at legacy biogas plants, you do get more methane slippage at those kind of facilities for a couple of reasons. One, I suppose, they're prioritizing uh, electricity production as opposed to methane production. So there isn't quite as much as an, uh, an incentive to be as efficient, so to speak. Um, secondly, as well, because those electricity production facilities need to store gas. So there's a lot of gas storage. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, gas storage isn't good. Um, and that gives you more risk of, of leakage. Um, whereas a biomethane facility, it's running constantly. The compressors are running constantly. You're either injecting into the grid or you're injecting into trailers. So it's not really hanging around long enough to become a risk in that regard. And the standards for the tube trailers and for grid injection is extremely intolerant of any form of leakage or slippage as well. So, so we're certainly very confident that um, uh, methane slippage would be minimized. And indeed, it still factors into that life cycle assessment. So. Uh, the design of a facility will have a methane slippage value. It has to be monitored as part of the annual audit process. And if there's any leakages or anything like that, it goes against the sustainability assessment. So it has to be made up for in the life cycle assessment. Uh, but given, if you think about it, you're, you're primarily mitigating the significant methane emissions that would otherwise be occurring from things like animal slurries anyway, you know, so you are indeed achieving a far more, um, a far more significant saving on methane slippage than, than would otherwise be the case, because if you didn't have an AD facility, all of that methane would be going to air in any event, if you know what I mean. A question here that, that points out that in, in relation to, I suppose, solar and, and wind energy, it's really been taken over by the corporates and farmers really haven't been given a space. Uh, there's two kind of questions. Will Gas Networks Ireland promote the involvement of farmers in this activity in the future? And the second one was, well, what is the experience in, say, France and Germany and some of the bigger countries where uh, have farmers been involved or is it predominantly corporate? Yeah, look at biomethane, by its nature, AD, agri AD biomethane, uh, very um, definitively requires the farmers. It's a farmer business. There isn't really room for big corporates in this kind of model, to be honest. Um, uh, when I go over to France, the kind of typical models I've seen there, you'd have a collective, maybe two, three or four farmer families coming together. They're, they have joint ownership of these facilities in many cases. Um, the model I like the most actually over what I come across in France is where they, the families share the operation and running of the facility. So one family is running it for two weeks, it rotates to the next family and the next family. It's a really, really nice model, if you know what I mean. Uh, now, as it's, it's typically collectives because there's very few farmers big enough to do this on their own as well. So it encourages neighbours and farming neighbours to work together, if you know what I mean, uh, sharing both the, the feedstock, the running and the benefits and the, the digestive management, stroke organic fertiliser management. It's a model really that doesn't really suit a big corporate coming in to, to try and do it. Where there are exceptions in AD biomethane, it isn't in the agri space, it would be in the commercial waste space. So obviously the, the opposite applies to commercial waste, to be honest. So you're, you know, could a, could a group of farmers compete with um, a big commercial waste operator? No, they couldn't, you know. So trying to do an agri AD business based on a gate fee from Brown Bin Waste Collection in Cork City or something like that, you know, you won't really be able to compete against the corporates that will be going after that kind of feedstock. Uh, but agri feedstock, absolutely not. It can really only be done by, by farmers and in farmer ownership. Even, um, uh, could I just ask a question, just following on from that, Ian and, and Niamh, around the, you know, the, the, the investment that's needed to actually get these up and running? And obviously there's a risk uh, that anyone takes on with, you know, setting up one of these plants and so forth. I mean, that the price that uh, somebody gets for their uh, flurry or for their uh, whatever uh, they're supplying is are there any models there uh, are, are futures or you know guarantees there to 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 to, to offset some of that risk that uh, you know individuals or small cooperatives would say would would need to take on. 
Uh, yeah, so I suppose we've been involved with KPMG in developing a few um, sample uh, business models. Uh, we ourselves, gas networks Ireland, are actually prohibited mm -hmm. from investing in and owning and operating any gas production facility ourselves. But to assist the development, yes, we, we have developed a few models ourselves. And we're also collaborating with the Chagas Research Project and Project Fleet, for instance, also to see can other economic models be developed as well. Um, but and like I described earlier, there's going to be a multitude of different um, models that will work for different farmer cooperatives, etc. Um, the commercials, though, the primary uh, consideration here is the gas. The, the revenue for the gas is your primary revenue stream. There will be other revenues that will develop over time, uh, but primarily the business case is built around the revenue for gas and it accordingly needs a guaranteed price. And what we're assuming in all of our models is it's a guaranteed price for 10 to 15 years, probably 15 years really being the optimum. Uh, the uh, incentive schemes that are coming, and uh, I won't go into detail here now because it's it's Action 57B in the Interim Climate Action Plan. It's it's, a, it's talking about an obligation-based scheme. It's a bit complicated. I, we could hold an entire workshop to explain how it works. But in simple terms, an AD developer will be looking to tie an obligation party to a 15-year contract, ideally, maybe even longer, to be honest. And that the nature of that contract would be like a gas purchase agreement, essentially, uh, would be needing to guarantee the price for that length of time such that you get a full return on obviously all of the capital assets investment invested into the project and obviously cover all of your operating costs. The models we've developed are assuming uh, an internal rate of return of up to 9%, you know, 8 9%, that's in, it's in or around about that order. Compare that to, for instance, um, a solar uh, or a wind farm development, they'd be typically 4.5%, IRR. So we believe that's quite competitive, but obviously the market will, will also have, have a part to play in, in, you know, in those prices. The question here, in relation to the kind of size you're, you're envisaging, what kind of overall capital cost are you are you potentially talking about for, for that size of unit in a range? So for a 20 gigawatt hour facility, you're looking at a capital cost of roughly five million, five and a half million. Um, for a 40 gigawatt hour facility, there is economies of scale, I suppose, whenever you develop an AD facility and the capital cost is looking around eight million. But I suppose there's kind of it's, I suppose, 20 gigawatt hours is definitely what we would envisage as a farm scale AD. Um, as you get towards a bit larger at 40 gigawatt hours, there is obviously more challenges, I suppose, around planning and things like that, because it could be, it's kind of tipping on industrial scale. Not quite, but it's just a larger facility brings kind of larger conditions as well. But that is kind of the, the capital cost that you, you'd be looking at for either of those size facilities. I don't know if you want um, to add anything, Ian, to that. Is that? Yeah, no, that, that's the ballpark. And obviously that's today's money, if you know what I mean. So uh, we're, when we're talking about commissioning uh, probably 2023, for instance, I'm sure there'll be inflation and things like that to consider between now and then. But uh, today's money, that's kind of what you're talking about. And I Is suppose, it? just sorry to add as well, that, you know, um, in regions, like, for example, in the, in the Mitchellstown region, if there were to be um, 20 facilities, you would also, I suppose, get benefit from having one or two suppliers as well for your AD technology. Um, again, bringing in or having that kind of consistency across, um, again, could could have some sort of returns for, for producers by not having, you know, 20 different type of AD plants and 20 different types of kit. Um, so there is, I suppose, economies of scale to be brought there as well whenever there is farmers working in conjunction together, um, for example, a, a CGI or something similar like that. Uh, very practical question. Uh, are there, uh, is the, the uh, digestate sterilised and is there any risk of, of swapping of, of diseases across farms if you're returning digestate? So at these sizes, it's pretty well mandatory that, that uh, sterilization is required. Uh, I think within the rules, you can try and maybe find a way of avoiding it. If you're a really, really, really big farm and, and was, uh, you had all of that slurry all on your own, technically speaking, uh, you might be able to avoid um, having to sterilize. But really, that's just not a practical example. So, yes, the, you know, either the slurry coming in has to be um, um, sterilized 
are um, the collective digestate at the end has to be. And in reality, it's more likely the end process, to be honest, that, that would apply. Okay, and there's there's a, a, a question here about your view on, uh, and insight into short-term and uh, medium and long-term feed-in tariff levels that might be available. <laughs> I don't know if you're able to answer that. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, as I say, it, it's an entire workshop in itself, probably. And I'd imagine we'll be running workshops like that towards the end of the year in particular uh, as there's clarity. So there'll, there'll be a consultation, for instance, later in the year and um, fairly soon, hopefully. Uh, but in reality, yes, it won't be a feed-in tariff specifically. It's an obligation scheme. But largely speaking, it's very similar. Uh, as a group, a developer or a group of developers will be looking to secure contracts with obligated parties and the obligated party will be obligated to offer, as we say, certainly we believe 15 year contract is appropriate. Um, if they go 10 year, for instance, then it will be 10 year at a higher price, for instance, you know, some may be even willing to go 20 years plus, to be honest. So, but you do need longevity, a long term guarantee. And we'll see how this develops as the year progresses, you know. We have a question here, just uh, I think from a consumer's perspective about the future of the gas mixes that you're proposing there, that there would be more hydrogen uh, and biomethane. Is this going to have implications for you know boilers or for people uh, people's homes? Yes. Oh, yeah, sure. I'd go ahead here. Um, so biomethane, no. Biomethane is a direct compatible substitute for natural gas. So where there's biomethane in the network, there is absolutely no changes to infrastructure um, or changes to operations and is compatible at home. Um, with the hydrogen blend, so hydrogen is very much, again, as Ian said, it's, it's into the future. Um, you probably won't be seeing an awful lot of that on until the commercials kind of begin to stack up that bit better. So you're probably talking a decade or so away. Um, we have a facility, um, an innovation centre in, in Brown's Barn in Dublin, where we are looking at, I suppose, those challenges of at what percentage can we blend, um, the implications for the end user, what infrastructure requirements, if any, and at what point do we have to make that change potentially as well. So it's all very much evolving at the moment, um, but it is, it's an area we're working on and it's an area that we and Europe are, are excited about as well. Um, so that's, that's all to come, I suppose. Oh, it sounds exciting. Question in there in terms of feedstock, is, is maize a viable feedstock? Uh, what's your view on it? Um, so within the, the calculation, it's a calculation methodology that you apply to your feedstock mix. And as I say, we apply generic terms, but then you have to follow that calculation methodology. And indeed, you know, certain feedstocks, I think probably most feedstocks, you'd find a certain allowable percentage would be acceptable. Something like um, um, maize silage, which is a, a tillage based crop it probably would be a very small percentage, but nonetheless, uh, it would be a percentage, or there would be a, an acceptable percentage in there. And again, you can balance this with, say, um, you know, a, a higher waste origin percentage to compensate for uh, for um, a material like, like maize silage. Um, but say, perennial ryegrass or, or mixed species swards are easier and have less, uh, less of a sustainability issue, if you know what I mean. Uh, so higher... Uh, net emissions feedstocks require a balance at the other end you need to compensate with uh, with more higher waste proportion like more more animal slurry and at the end of the day don't forget more animal slurry means you need a bigger tank you know what i mean so it starts impacting your capital costs as well so uh, in reality no uh, it, yes you can do it but it will be limited to a percentage we have uh, i suppose some Questions coming in there around the, um, I suppose the, the the wider environmental impacts of AD and uh, biomethane. We've talked about a lot about the, the carbon uh, aspect, but what about water quality, biodiversity? Um, you know, there's the start. We've had lots of presentations over the signpost series here about the, you know, the need to to develop more ba nature based solutions to uh, the maybe there's some of the the side effects of agriculture, we'll call it. Um, has, has that been examined, that, that, those other aspects? Yeah, in particular, the use of digestion instead of spreading the spreading of, of raw animal slurry, if you know what I mean, that, that in itself brings about significant um, benefits in terms of water quality, certainly. Um, 
every process can be run efficiently or less efficiently as well. I'd always caveat that. But in principle, you should be able to run an AD facility and manage that digestate in a form that's better to the environment, not worse. Uh, obviously, something like mixed species swords have greater advantages as well. So the two things, that's what one is um, mixed species swords as a feedstock require significantly less nitrogen fertilizer. So you're looking at a, a significant cutback in uh, use of chemical fertilizers. Also means you, the digestate you're producing, uh, it becomes more viable to make it into organic fertilizers. It can go further, if you know what I mean. Um, and the other aspect we, we particularly like about the mixed species swords as well is that the, the mixed species include quite a lot of flowering plants like your red clovers and your herbs and things like that as well. Uh, now, they're the main ones, but certainly air quality, water quality um, in particular should be improved. And yes, there are some biodiversity benefits as well. Certainly it leads to net improvement. We don't believe uh, it will lead to the opposite, if you know what I mean. Okay. Look, we're just over time. Uh, Neve. I know you have an urgent appointment to attend, so we won't keep you any further. Uh, Ian, uh, thank you so much for uh, your presentation and uh, your contribution today. And, and uh, look, really, I, th I think uh, this we'd love to maybe get an update from you at a later stage, maybe more around that incentive side of things, because I think there's a lot of questions coming in around that. We have huge amount of questions coming in here this morning. So uh, you, you can see yourself as a huge level of interest in this. So so thank you again for, for your time this morning. Uh, Pat, thanks for helping with the questions today. And just to let you know that next week we'll be speaking to Dr. Anita Dohany, uh, who is the head of species and land management with Birdwatch Ireland. And she'll be talking about farmland birds and the birds of conservation concern in Ireland. So we do encourage you to, to join us for that. So uh, thanks again to our production team, Andy Boland and Yvonne Maher, and uh, we will see you next week. So thanks again. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.